0: Welcome to the New Hope Sermon of the Week. We hope you are encouraged by this message by Pastor Tom Sturbins. This morning we're ending up our third in this brief series called, Will You Be My Neighbor? And if you haven't noted or picked up on it, there is an underlying theme That I believe, and the the pastoral staff with me believe, that God is sort of bringing to new hope, and that is reawakening and reclaiming what's known in the Bible as the Great Commission. Now, if statistics are true, if I were to poll everyone here and everyone online, uh, probably fewer than 15% would be able to answer. Well, what's the Great Commission? You know, what's that about? The Great Commission is is the charge to share the gospel, to share our faith, to bring the good news, to go. Teach, baptize, witness, win people to Jesus Christ. That's our call to share our faith, and we are to do it naturally, just an outflow of how we live and and how we love. Um, This week, I I love talking to pastors, and and over the past two or three weeks, as I discovered, I think was sort of locked down. I got to talk to more than ever. And one young pastor called me, just a great young man, and he said, I have some problems. He says, he says, in all of this, this political climate and difficulty, he says, how do we know what to talk about? How do you approach it? And, and, and then, you know, well, just so what are the terms of engagement? He said, I said, well, first of all, we need to realize that how we approach anything is redemptively because God, came, God wants to redeem the world. So our approach to anyone is, is Tom Klinekt is on the front row. You can't see him out there on the camera. But Tom's and I, to approach Tom and say, Tom, let's pray together and discover what gifts and deposits and things that God's placed in you. What experiences you've walked through that perhaps were even negative but now have become a testimony because those are the points at which God would redeem those, bring them to full value out of your life, and use them for his purposes. And the second half of that, as we've studied here, see, we have an advocate before the throne, our Redeemer. We have an advocate here, the Holy Spirit, who is the Transformer. So we live redemptively and transformationally towards people. And it's this message. God's put so much in you, you don't even know that he wants to bring out. Well, I don't know what's happened. Well, I can tell you how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit now lives around you. And when you accept the first half of that equation, that is, Jesus died for you to redeem you, you get the second half of the equation. The transformer comes to live inside you and begins to transform and just make things happen. And here's the good news. And then his pastor asked, well, what about these difficult subjects? And I said, well, in America, the problem is we approach truth with being right. But Jesus didn't approach truth that way. He didn't say you would know truth and the truth would make you right. He said you would know the truth and the truth would make you free. So... If we don't live free, it doesn't do anyone, us, any good to tell other people how to live in something that we're not experiencing. So, what we need to do is learn how to walk in truth, live in truth, to where that freedom will be witnessed, and people will say, Man, I don't know about that faith and all that stuff, but I know that there's just a freedom around your life. And I, can you tell me about that? Can I drink from that fountain? I love that. And the answer is yes. So that's how we live. Now, we're in difficult times on this third Sunday. I've totally changed the title of what I had planned a week ago um, uh, to to come to wrap up this series. And this morning on the the third part and closing part of Will You Be My Neighbor? Here's the title. Will You Be My Neighbor After the Election on Tuesday? Uh Uh-oh. Will You Be My Neighbor? Now, I I recently, I should have printed this, Again, on my Facebook page, I just, this little meme that says, uh, and and let me just, probably so I can say it to you right, I just, it dropped out of my head at the last minute when I thought, wow, uh, I could probably share that with you, and, um, but this little, come on, computer work. There we go, it's going to cooperate. This little meme that says, eye for eye, condemnation never produces eye to eye, revelation. Let me unpack that for you. We live in a time when everybody is trying to see eye to eye and they don't seem to be able to. My problem is not, see, in Paul, Paul the Apostle wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, listen, what do I have to say to the world? My primary task is to inform the church. And this very passage was dealing with the complexities of interfacing with culture. Because once you get past that verse in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, he says, why are you taking each other to court when you're going to judge angels? He says, why, why are you doing that? He says, You're "This all this motion. Now, there's a ton more to be said about that because <clears throat> you can walk away drawing a principle from that right now. So well, you should never do anything legal or in court or of a civil nature. And that's not what he's saying. He's dealing with a specific situation. But what he is saying is, you're getting trapped in, in the judicial issues of this age and there is so much more to come. And so he calls us, as he does a thousand times, You need to start living now like you are then, because the Holy Spirit that is there is in you now, trying to bring to you that reality then into your now. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing. And over and over and over, Paul would say that. So how do we approach these, these incredibly complex situations? Again, my concern is not with those outside the church in terms of my role as a pastor shepherd and what voice I bring. I speak to you guys. Now, I do interface with the world, and I do share and reach out and share the gospel with people, but my primary voice is not to stand here with you in this room and shout right over your head and say, there's sin out there, there's sinners out there, bad sinners out there, ugly sinners, mean sinners, sinners that want to destroy your life and sinners that want to destroy your soul. And if you live in a particular section of the United States, you will believe that a particular political party is probably representative of that evil. Don't laugh. You were supposed to. Tragically, I guess it's not funny. You know, they're evil. They're, they're bad. They're evil. They're this. They're that. <clears throat> so in posting and writing and engaging, and, and really I don't write a lot publicly as much as I do on a couple of uh, pastoral sites where sort of try to walk with guys and we dialogue back and forth about how we move through these realities. Beloved, can I tell you something? The truth that you live will set people free not your ability to articulate or define an apologetic that wins an argument. You won't win an argument of religion and bring someone to faith. If you live truth, they will see the freedom around you, and they'll say, I want what you have. And that works. It works every time. Okay, so here we are today, and like never before have we been thrust upon, well, what side are you on? Are you a Democrat or Republican? you one of those third-party guys. What's side? See, there's never been a time. Uh, I've been here now through five presidential elections. And what's going to happen next Sunday is whoever wins, we're going to pray for them because the Bible says that. Right. Now, can I tell you something? That when Barack Obama won the first time, I don't recall the second. I do recall the, the first time in particular. I mean, we pray for every president afterwards. We just We pray for them because the Bible says to do that. So we do that. How many, how many don't want our president to be blessed and have some sort of input from the Holy Spirit or God some way or another? So I'm going to pray that. Say amen. You can, everybody can say amen to that. Okay? So uh, we did that. And on the Sunday, I had everyone stand and said, let's pray for our president. People left the church and did not come back over that. Now, I'm not looking to start some seedy gossipy thing. But, beloved, what I want to tell you, this little corny phrase that I've said so many times, is the moment at which we become more concerned with who's in the chair at the White House than who's on the throne in heaven, we've lost sight of our depth perception. We've lost total sight of who and what we are. So the good news is the Bible has something to say about it. Joshua chapter 5. Joshua is the book of conquest. Moses has passed away. He's gone to be with the Lord up until this point. There's 40 years they've wandered around in the wilderness. Moses hands off the sort of final crossing and conquering conquest. He hands it over to younger Joshua. Joshua is this strategist. Boy, he's all in. He was one of the spies that had been sent in 40 years earlier and one of only two voices that came back and said, we can take this. God says we can. 10 out of the 12 says, no, there's giants in the land. And we were like grasshoppers. We're just a bunch of bugs. Let's run away. And so they ran away and spent 40 years in the wilderness. But Joshua was one of the two that says, we can take them. He was young 40 years earlier. Forty years later, he's a little older. But make no mistake, he's still looking for that conquest. And as the first place they would come against in conquest was the city of Jericho. If you grew up in or around church, this is one of the major Bible stories and themes and Bible stories and themes we need to know. I've threatened for years to do a lengthy series on the major Bible stories and how they inform our faith and how much they pop up in culture, how much we need to know. Those major Bible stories of creation, of Noah, of Abraham, of Moses, of the Exodus, of the conquest moving into the promised land, uh, of the stories of these wonderful Old Testament people and how they give us something to lean on because if you read Hebrews 11, you'll find that. It said, just go revisit the hall of fame of faith and let your, your witness be strengthened by this great cloud that has gone on before us. It's right there. So here we are in Joshua. He's come up now. They've crossed over the Jordan. They've celebrated the Passover. And now conquest is beginning. And the first in their sight from God is the city of Jericho. And they're going to, to do something strange. Joshua is preparing for a battle, but as he goes out to survey it, and you can just picture it's on an evening perhaps, the sun is setting and he's on a ridge or something, maybe overlooking the city of Jericho, and it says in verse 13 of Joshua chapter 5, Joshua chapter 5 verse 13, it says, now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand, and Joshua uh, went to to him and said, Here it goes. Ready? How many have heard this question in the last month or six? Are you for us or for our adversaries? Are you for us or for our adversaries? I would love for God to show up at every voting center an apparition and for us to walk up and say, are you Republican or Democrat? And wait for that answer. And now you're sitting there saying, well, what answer do you think he'd give, Pastor? Hang on. Maybe you'll come up with your own. Verse 14. And he said to him, now, now note, what I want you to notice, okay? He said, are you for us or against us? Now, whoever this is came with sword drawn. And I'm going to go ahead and give away. Theologians and scholars believe that this was a pre-incarnate theophany uh, in other words, Jesus appeared, the Son of God. And there's lots of reasons that support that. If you choose to say, well, I don't know that it was, that's fine too. But whoever it was came as the captain of the Lord's host. That's, that's Hebrew language for he was the general of the armies of God. Now we do know <clears throat> at the end of the book in Revelation, Jesus does show up with a sword. And he, in fact, is the captain of the Lord's host. And everything has finally come to a reckoning and put in order. But here he shows up and he says, uh, Joshua asked the practical question. Are you for us or for our adversary? Watch the answer. He said, no. No what? (laughs) That's like, you know, uh, would you like banana bread or banana pudding? Yes. Okay. So he gives this sort of answer here. Are you for us or for our adversary? No. Now, if I would have been in the conversation, I would have said, no what, bro? No. What does that mean? No. But he says, no, rather I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, what has my Lord to say to his servant? And then the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, remove your sandals from your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. The summary is this, that he said, no. No. Where we're starting is worship. Now, what I do want you to know, watch this. Joshua is about to enter a battle. So his question was not entirely off base. And all of a sudden, this incredible supernatural being shows up with a sword in his hand. Probably General Joshua is thinking, hey, yeah, he showed up to fight. He's got a sword in his hand. Clearly, whether it's pre-incarnate Christ or an angel, is clearly ready for a battle. So why the separation here? So it is naturally a natural question. Joshua would say, well, bro, I see you standing there with a sword. Looks like you're getting ready to fight. Can you tell me whose side you're on? He goes, no. He said, I come in the name of the Lord. I'm the captain of the Lord's host. The ground on which you're standing is holy. Take off your shoes. And again, and the implication is worship. Now it appears this last verse of the scripture, everything ends there, but it doesn't. It, we don't learn anymore about direct translation of this conversation until you start reading in chapter six, verse one. Let's go there. <clears throat> Again, chapter one five seems to end abruptly, but watch chapter six. Now Jericho was tightly shut because the sons of Israel, because of the sons of Israel, no one went out and no one came in. Verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, now we're picking up here reflectively probably what went on during or after this worship experience when he took off his, his, his shoes and, and no doubt knelt face down in the presence here. Take off your shoes, you're on holy ground, you, you, we're going to worship here. He said, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and valiant warriors. You shall march around the city and all the men of war circling the city once you shall do for six days. By the way, this is one of the little questions when you ask people that well, because they did it for seven days is said, how many times did they march around Jericho? It's one of the little Bible quiz questions that are fun. Somebody says seven and you're gonna learn it wasn't seven. It was seven days, but 13 times. Okay, so and seven priests shall carry seven trumpets. Can I just push the pause button here for a second? With the COVID thing happening in our home, I had to push a pause on our revelation study which we will resume in January. But one thing I've encouraged us to do when going through the book of Revelation this time is to pay close attention to the no less than 184 references to Old Testament passages. Because John the Revelator is writing to his churches in sort of a coded language things they already understood. And when he makes reference to these Old Testament things, they're drawing conclusions that we don't. We've put a twist on Revelation that I don't think John intended. But... This is another one of those because you don't get too far into Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Lion of Judah showing up. He takes a scroll, he pops seven seals, and the seventh seal unlocks seven trumpets. And these trumpets begin to unfold actions of God to bring righteousness to its ultimate conclusion. And so that that connotation, watch here when he says, and seven priests will carry seven trumpets. So clearly, as certainly as revelation and the trumpets there give indication of a spiritual battle, we're aware that that same thing is happening here. Seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark, then on the seventh day you'll march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow their trumpets. It shall be when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people with a great shout shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people will go up, every man, straight ahead. God says, I have a plan for how to take care of the battle. And it's probably not the way you're going to do it. What I need you to do is worship me. And the indication, if you listen. So Joshua, son of Nun, verse 6, called the priests. These are the worship leaders. Called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let the seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horns. How many know they had a bad-to-the-bone band marching around this? Whether the Jericho citizens had any idea what was coming, they said, man, these guys just got it kicking here. They'll be back around tomorrow. So, you know, singing their worship song. They had no idea what was coming. While the people of God simply worshiped and trusted God in whatever outcome it would be. So verse six, take up the Ark of the Covenant. Let seven priests carry seven trumpets of ram's horn before the Ark of the Lord. And then he said to the people, go forward, march around the city. Let the armed men go on before the Ark of the Lord as well. And it was so that when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets of Ram's horn before the Lord, went forward, blew the trumpets, the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. That was representative of the presence of God. The armed men went before the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard came after the ark, and they continued to blow the trumpets. What are these crazy Israelites up to do? Look, they want to come for battle, but we don't see any swords. We see armed people, but they're singing, dancing, playing music. What on earth is going on? Verse 10. But Joshua commanded the people, saying, Now if there's any verse you want to take away from here today, for this season that we're in, everybody pay attention to verse 10. Here it goes. You shall not shout, nor let your voice be heard, nor let a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you, shout. <clears throat> We have never lived in such a time when we feel the need for our voice to be heard. We have Facebook. We have Twitter. We have Instagram. We have TikTok. We have every way. Bless the Lord, we're going to make our voice heard. What if God showed up and said, Church of Jesus Christ, watch See, God is the one that sent them on this geopolitical conquest. God sent them to conquer Jericho. But he said, that's not your focus. If you focus on worship, I'll handle the outcome that I need to handle. If I could convince the church of Jesus Christ, and by the way, I am not a pacifist. I would love to be a pacifist. I don't have that gift. I am not. I don't make any claim to do that. I don't call anyone to do it. So I am not out, let's sing, let's tiptoe through the tulips, pick flowers, and just sit in the sunshine and hope something turns out right. I am an activist. I get engaged. I want to be involved. But beloved, can I tell you something? The moment at which we begin to subordinate once again... The significance of the throne of God to the chair in the White House, the Church of Jesus Christ, has missed it entirely. And people are saying, oh, this is the most pivotal election ever. Do you want to know how many times I've heard that in 63 years? Every election is the most pivotal election ever. Everyone. I am not minimizing the significance of the things at hand. I'm going to talk about one and how it informs me because people ask me so often. I hope to get to that in a moment. But we've never lived in such a time when we feel the need for our voice to be heard. And yet their instructions are this. Do not shout or do not let your voice or a word proceed out of your mouth until the day I tell you. So they're just marching around worshiping. The music's playing. They're out there doing whatever they're doing as an act of worship. And then all of a sudden, okay, the restraint will not only serve us well, by the way, everyone look this way, in public, it will also serve us well at home. How many know that there's times when you just need to bite your tongue until blood comes out your nose? Anybody know what I'm talking about? And we don't know that. We live in a day and age because we're Americans. And in America, you get to say what you want. It's freedom of speech. Go ahead and work the First Amendment at your home to the edges and let me know how that works out for you. (laughs) In the next debate you have with your spouse and and there's something, and God's telling you, boy, keep your mouth shut. Just shut your mouth right now. No, I'm an American and I'm going to say what I have to say and I'm going to win this argument. Bless God. At that moment, you are destined to lose most assuredly. At that moment, when the Holy Spirit is saying, just march, sing, keep your mouth shut. I'll tell you when it's time to talk. But we don't listen to the Holy Spirit. We listen. It's my right. We do it again in public. We do it at home. It's amazing how it affects our home. Let's keep reading this story. It's fun. So, they had, so he had the ark of the Lord taken around the city, circling it once. Then they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. Joshua rose early in the morning and the priest took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets. He goes on and on and on. Verse 14, thus the second day they marched around the city once, returned the camp. They did the same thing all the way through the seventh day. Verse 15, on the seventh day, they arose at the dawning of the day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. Only on that day, they marched around the city seven times. And on the seventh time, when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now, I want you to notice a phrase here. The city shall be under the ban. Everybody say that phrase, under the ban. This word haram means devoted to God or holy unto God or given for destruction. It's this amazing uh, diversity of, of understanding. I'm going to explain it to you, but I want you to see how many times it's said. It said, the city shall be under the ban. That means it's holy unto God. And all, it's be- all that is in it belongs to the Lord, only Rahab the harlot. And I don't have time to tell you that story, but it's a fascinating story. She was the only person in the city that actually helped out the spies when they came in. And as it turns out, this woman is in the lineage of Jesus Christ, a harlot. So, what's up with that? But there becomes a special provision for her. It says, only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in her house shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, only keep yourself from things, here it comes, under the ban, so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make a camp out of Israel uh, accuse, make the camp of Israel accused and bring trouble on it. Now, if I went on to explain to you in Joshua verse 17, how it introduces later on, and I, I just had to choose how much scripture to give you this morning. Uh, I believe in verse 24, 27, it talks about the reality. And the things under the ban were gold, silver, and bronze. And they were things that, quote, survived the fire. Those articles were to be taken and put in the temple of God as an act of worship that would ultimately be used, excuse me, brought to the tabernacle that would be used for building the temple. So God said, these things will become an expression of worship unto me if you will let me handle the outcome. By the way, if you keep reading, and it's not part of our study today, but in chapter 7, a character named Achan, Achan, he takes some of these things and hides them under his tent And it brings a curse on the nation. Boy, there is a ton to be taught there about when we put our hands on things that God says, just stand back and let me have that. And if you'll offer it at worship, I'll make something out of it that you can't. By the way, I'm telling you guys, listen to me. I'm not saying, by the on our sign, it says, pray for America. We'll change that sign for the next two days. It simply says this, vote, vote. Why would I say vote? Vote. Because uh, if you were to read one of my favorite parables uh, about talents that this master gives, 10 to one, five to another, and one to another, and then he returns. And the one who had 10 made 10. The one who made five made five. And he says, great, I've got great rewards for you. And the one who had one, he took it and buried it. And he buried it. And when he returned, he says, well, what have you done with it? He said, I knew you were an exacting Lord. This was the servant speaking To the master, I knew you were an exacting Lord, taking up where you did not sow. And so I hid it in the ground. And he says, great. Well, let me tell you what I'm going to do. Because you knew I was that way. He's saying it tongue in cheek. Let me tell you what I'm going to do now. And he says, take from him who has not and give to him who has. See, that's counterintuitive. That's counterintuitive because it certainly is not the way we think it should work. That you take from them who have and give to him who has not. But he said, if you don't use it, I'm going to take it. And if you don't do something with it, I'll take it and give it to somebody else. That is not a threat. I'm not looking to leverage you to vote for anything. I am saying this, that there are things that God's placed in your hand. By the way, I could as much turn away from talking about voting to talking about worshiping and giving to talking about what you do with your house, to talk about what you do with your time, things that God has given you, what do you do with them? Do you make the maximum out of them that's there? Or do you say, well, no, I don't have as much as they have, so I'm really not going to do anything with it. God says, great, here's my response to that. If you're not going to do anything with it, I'm going to take it and give it to somebody who has 10. (gasps) But I only have one. But you're not doing anything with it. My concern, God's concern is not who has what, it's what you're doing with what you have. And watch God reward that. I mean, it is just amazing. It works in life. Don't underestimate the position you're at at work. Well, I don't really have a place of influence. Live your life. Live an act of worship. Live your life the way that God's called you to live. By the way, let me see if I included this verse of Scripture. Um, Hang on. The overriding principles that are here. Man, I didn't include a Scripture. Actually, there's a page I think I lost. That's tragic. Good for you. Um, hang on a second oh here it is I got it let me see if I finish this page the overriding principle we will indeed act intentionally we will but we will never forget first and foremost God has called us to live a life of worship which ultimately engages us in a battle that is always bigger than the geopolitical worship concerns uh, excuse me geopolitical worship of our day there's always bigger concerns. We always live under that. Beloved, if we would spend as much time praying as we do writing on Facebook, please hear me. You would be, we, we don't believe in that. And now I've just got to sort of stop right there and jump to, because I've opened the door on something. Lord, help me remember to get back here. Luke 16, follow me here. Luke 16. Now this parable, it's, it's, there's eight verses, so it's a bit lengthy. And the tendency is to misunderstand. And the tendency through the years, as I've heard people speak on it, is to take Jesus' words and act as if Jesus is validating a conniver. And he's not. But let's listen to the story he tells. Now, he was also saying this to the disciples. There was a rich man who had a manager, and the manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. He called him and said, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management. You can no longer be a manager. Well, the manager said to himself, see, that was a position sort of high, uh, high up in the culture. Uh, and he called him and said, what is this? I hear you can't be a manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. So what am I going to do? I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and he began saying to the first how much do you owe my master? And he said, One hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Uh, then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said, Take your bill and write eighty. And his master praised the un- Watch this, praised the unrighteous manager because he acted shrewdly. Watch this. For the sons of this age act more shrewd in relation to their own kind. Than the sons of life. Jesus is not validating manipulation or trickery. What he is saying. He says I want you to look and watch the world. When you watch the world, you're going to be caught off guard about all the little sneaky, crafty stuff they do. And I'm not telling you to do that. What I am telling you is they don't know anything else to trust than that. You have a better system far above that. But here's what's going on. They work their system more than you work yours. You're trying to work their system, and I've given you a different and better system to work. They don't have a God they can trust or talk to. They're left up to their own devices. But you have a God you can trust, a God you can worship, a God you can invite into the equation. We can pray. We can invite the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, I've said before, Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19 represent in the simplest of language. I have extensive teaching on this. The voting power of the church that votes heaven in and hell out. And it has the power to alter the the civil referendum of this planet. But we don't do that. And especially in America, we don't do that. Who are you voting for? And I can argue with people. I can debate with people. And I have pastors that call me directly or message me and say, you know, I just don't think that you should vote at all. I understand their position. That is not my position. I think we should be a steward with anything placed in our hand to bring maximum outcome. And taking that and just burying it and saying, I'm going to do nothing with that, I just don't think is consistent. If you've come to a different conclusion, great, roll with it. You want my opinion. Now you've got it for all that it's worth. I will be voting on Tuesday. When I go to to inform myself in these days, and again... Because so many of you have asked. I don't talk about personalities. You can probably figure out whatever you want to figure out. And I wish I had time just to sort of ramble at length about some things. But here's the deal. In taking an action, when Jesus would say, whatever you do to the least of these, you do it unto me. And in the midst of all of this swamp and and milieu of, uh, of, of... of political minutia and craziness and and spinning messages and personalities that are all over the place. Where I return to, as a matter of fact, I had one pastor write, and he said, the problem I have with evangelicals, he says, is they claim to support and stand stand for the unborn. And the problem I have with that is this same group Gravitate to those who aren't living because they are loveless towards those who are. Well, I responded to that. And I said, to say simply that because I passionately stand to represent those, as a matter of fact, I was one of those that was just my heart was torn out and tears in my eyes when I heard the words come from George Floyd's mouth I can't breathe. I just want to breathe, I can't breathe. And I got into an extended discussion about that and I want to be so careful about how that is traversed. But the thing that I said and wrote is that why is it that we have to polarize ourselves one side or another, that we can passionately stand and represent the tragedy that happened where a man cried out and said, I just want to breathe, I can't breathe, and yet, Many of us who rally to that fail to stand with those who never had a chance to take a breath at all. Where is the balance of that? You see, I don't believe it's an either-or. And in the political landscape, it's an either-or. It's one or the other, and you're polarized to the other. Beloved, we don't have the luxury of taking that polarized position because we're people of the kingdom of God that understand when the captain of hosts shows up with his sword drawn, he says, Tom, you're in a battle way bigger than Jericho. This has far more implication than you understand. Jericho is just a thing that's coming. You're going to march around it. The walls are going to fall down. There's going to be other battles to be won. But never forget that you're engaged in a battle. I've shown up here with my sword drawn to let you know there's a way bigger battle. I'm engaged in it every moment. There's a spiritual battle and spiritual warfare. And what's taking face on the planet is only an outcome of that. And there's an opportunity for you to be engaged in the big one that will affect the little one. Way more than if you just focus on the little one. And abandon the big one. You're part of a group of people that have been called to attach, attach heaven and pull the kingdom of God in by praise and worship. It's important what we do here. It's important what we do at home.. And another thing I wrote is, is this that I, that especially to these pastors, that it is more tragic that we think we can have a greater effect on the quality of life on this planet by what we do in a voting booth than by what we do in a prayer closet. Yes, come on. I don't mean that to sound clever. I mean that passionately and pointedly. We need to be in the prayer closet pulling the lever, yes. saying, Father, we're, we're inviting something in from another world. We're going to do our best and vote for a value. I will stand and find, if I can find any ground worth standing on, I'm going to do what New Hope has done. We send teams to tsunamis, to hurricanes, to tornadoes. We help people. We help the poor. And can I tell you another thing? Early this morning, I contacted a brother whose business it is to set these things up. And I said, okay, I'm going to make the leap. I said, I want to stand more passionately than ever against abortion. But more than ever, we need to be offering some provision. And hear me. I don't believe that you have to offer an answer simply to say, don't kill someone. Well, what do you plan on doing with them? I don't have to tell you what I plan on doing. I can just stand here and say, don't kill them. Don't do that. And I, what I don't think the church has done enough on the other side, that we have done for, for decades, even had special gatherings for it, if statistics prevail, there's people sitting here, women, who have had abortions, who carry the guilt from that and don't feel like they can ever tell a soul that that can ever become part of a testimony because they will be so judged, not even by the spiritual implications, but by the political implications of it. But here's the thing I'm after. When I reached out to him and I contacted him, I said, I know it's before 7 o'clock. I apologize only a little. But here's what I want to know. I want to know how hard it's going to be to set up some sort of adoption agency in and through New Hope Church, either partnership with an organization or one that's right here. Because if we're going to say, please don't terminate that baby, can we say, give it to me? Give it here. Because there's lines of people waiting to adopt children. So the church not only needs to amen. Come on. Give the Lord praise. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. This guy is, is, is informed, so it's not just talk. He's a person that understands the law, and particularly of Tennessee And we're going to begin pursuing this immediately, and I'm going to begin telling you about it and what that will look like. Because I don't believe we should just pray and ignore that. As a matter of fact, the statement due to the least of these had to do with giving a thirsty person a cup of water. So we need to act, and we need to act with a sense of purpose. Now, when all that has been said and done and more has been said than done, what do we do? Well, I already know the story I'll tell. Let me tell you, if you think that Joshua, at that point, took that encounter with the angel and said, well, I need to now be ambivalent about where I stand on things. No. Years later, I don't know the exact number of years I had it in my head, and I should have refreshed myself. But in chapter 24, verse 15, many of you will recognize the closing phrase of this verse. Joshua speaking at the end of his life, he says, now, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, you choose for yourselves today, whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, watch this, whether the gods of your fathers, uh, your fathers served, which were beyond the river, he's referring to the golden calf. He's referring to a people that was so influenced by culture, they begin to value and have their worth informed. Please listen, look this way. Yesterday I was talking to a couple about to be married. They'll be married this week. And I looked them in the face, and and both of them would tell you, part of their testimony, they had previous marriage. And I said, let me tell you how important forgiveness is and and to totally release your ex-spouse and make sure that you don't drag that baggage forward. I said, one of, the, one of the things that forgiveness is associated with in the Old Testament, in the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, when he meets with his brothers who sold him uh, years before, 17 years before so, and sold him into slavery and treated him, hard, treated him hardly. And all of a sudden in this story, it's a beautiful story if you're not familiar with it. The brothers are now in a time of famine. The younger brother they sold into slavery has become the prime minister of Egypt. And it's this beautiful, just... Hollywood sort of romantic, poetic picture where in this moment, these brothers don't know that this guy, Joseph, is their brother or that he understands Hebrew, but he hears them discussing and say, you know, this is the horrible stuff that's happening because of what we did to Joseph. And all of a sudden, Joseph comes out and says, I'm your brother, I'm him. They all are weeping, oh my goodness, oh my, what, what, I just can't understand it. But he says these words. He said, do not grieve over uh, what's been done. Did you know the 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 word for grieve there is the word for idol, idol. An idol. I love how Isaiah talks about an idol with the futility of it. It's just so it's amazing and it speaks to us in culture today. He said, "It's amazing to me how, how uh, you guys go and cut a tree down, and you use half of it for fire to cook a meal, and you carve the other half into a god. What's up with that?" I, I just love the irony of that little philosophical contrast. He says. You take something, make an idol out of it, and and, and he says in the other half you cut up and use to cook your beans. That's your idol. That's the power of it. But what is it? An idol is something that we craft and empower to inform us. Do you get that? An idol. Do, Do you get that unforgiveness becomes an idol because it makes that violated person, it gives them the power of deity. Until they do something differently, I won't be whole. Beloved, Idols inform us of our worth. And when he says to them in this verse, are you going to worship the idols like your fathers did on the other side of the river? When you're going to allow culture to inform your worth and values and make golden calves? I'm going to tell you, if you spend more time talking about which political position you're taking, you're melting down gold into a golden calf fast. And saying, it has more power to inform me of my worth than my faith does. Are you making an idol out of this thing? I am not a pacifist. I am not one that's going to stand back and sing kumbaya and wait for everything to work. I'm going to do everything I can with every resource God's placed in my hand. But I'm not going to make the mistake of drawing a line. And when someone said it this week, I heard a person say it. I addressed someone writing and said, I don't know how a person can be a Democrat and can't be and call themselves a Christian. This was a pastor leader said it. Several of the guys jumped in. I administrated a site with about 4,000 pastors on it. And I just let it run for a bit. And then I jumped in. I said, okay, can you give me chapter and verse for where it says that we are born again by the power of the cross and correct association with a political party? If there's something more than the power of the cross to save a soul, we're in big trouble. If it requires political party affiliation to validate my salvation, close the stinking doors of New Hope and let's be done. Because if that's what we've deteriorated to, church, we've missed the point. We just missed the point. You say, Well, I don't understand. I don't understand a lot of things. I don't know. Matter of fact, Paul would write and say, We live as people with our face pressed against the glass seeing darkly and warbly we don't get it i love that verse i wanted to do a series face against the glass all the things we press our face to try and, and see and make sense out of and it just doesn't make sense so what do you do you worship you you do what god's called us to do as the church we stand up people have said oh, 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 aren't you nervous about tuesday i said no i'm a little more concerned about sunday i gotta preach I'm not nervous about Tuesday. I will vote. I will make a statement and I will vote on a principle that is measurable for me. But I will walk out of that voting booth and as I've said to you already, understanding that the greatest power I bring to change the face of this planet is not in a booth but in a closet. And when we begin to believe that, things are going to happen. Things are going to happen. But but we don't, okay? So there's your close to the series. Let me make sure I got through all my notes and... Okay, so it was something incredibly clever that you needed to hear. There's not. We're done. Thank you for joining us for the New Hope Sermon of the Week. For more information about this podcast or other resources, visit newhopeonline.com.